John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1352.1th0207 certificate number 16065 texted you yesterday saying, yes, we are going to record yes. Omnibus because we believe in this endeavor. We do. <laughs> it's, it is a, it's one of the shaping functions of our life. We must memorialize yes. the culture before, before we go. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not getting any younger. Mm-hmm. Seas aren't getting any lower. We could still get COVID, both of us. <laughs> I was just telling you, my son, who I always <laughs> knew, would get COVID in the dorms and immediately bring it home. Uh Told us in the car on the way to the airport on Friday, hey, I, uh, I have a sniffle and a sore throat. Ugh. Five minutes after we could have given him a, uh, the Biden tests that litter our closet. Yeah. But uh, you're in the car. You're halfway the to car, the airport. Halfway to the airport. And it's not until in a different time zone the next morning that, that we go to a drugstore and get him a test. Ugh. And he's positive. After flying and he's coughing all, all over an entire airplane. He's like asymptomatic. But still, except for the sore throat and the right. stuffy nose, that's true. No, he he does have mild cold symptoms that he you know had just had just come over him that afternoon, and he tested positive. And so we spent the next five days. Well, we stuck him in the basement and said, "You're not allowed to see your grandparents or indeed anyone." Good. And although not really a punishment for a teen, yeah, is he still a teen? He's still a teen for a little if you're bit. A col- right? If you're in college and you're 19, are you a teen? You're a teen. I think you're a teen, it's which right is good. Because if I want to like kind of diss him, I can be like my <laughs> doofusy teen. Later, you have to be like my yo-yo son who is a college sophomore, and it's like eight more syllables. Yeah, that's too much. It really diffuses the the diss. You can just condense it down to yo-yo. I think that <laughs> that that encompasses my dingbat son who is now in his <laughs> mid 40s. Uh, so he right now is still. You're back. You're here <laughs> coughing on me, but he's uh, sequestered in a basement somewhere. We, have, we were testing negative every day, and now I think it's five days later, and he managed to not give it to anyone. I believe uh, it. Checks out. Well, I mean, the second he said that, I was like, Dylan, put on a mask. Right. And, and he did. But, you know, I was eating airport food next to him thinking, this kid doesn't really have, surely he doesn't really have COVID. It's one of the crazy things where <clears throat> it's somehow he can sit next to you on a plane 
and be in the car and be like, I think, <coughs> and somehow you don't get it. But then you read other accounts and it's like, oh, I, I passed by someone in, the, in, a, in a hallway and we all got COVID. I was halfway across a restaurant. Yeah, it's just basically it's reinforcing my idea that I'm some kind of a superior Ubermensch and I will, yeah. I will never get COVID. I thought you were going to say reinforcing your idea that it's all a that it's all made up. It's all made up, and that that mask mandates were Biden's attempt to. I don't remember. I, I'm not up on all the conspiracies. Something, something, George Soros. Yeah, something, that's something right. right? That's what it was. It all, yeah. See, see how that makes sense. Created now? in a lab. Something, something. George Soros. Something, something. <laughs> uh, so I no, just that I'm never going to get it. Never going to get it. Never going. Never going to get it. Never going to get, get it. it. Never going to get it. That's my COVID theme. I am super worried about getting COVID still. Two and a half, three years. I don't know. I don't know how long it's been. I don't know how long it's been. Uh, but my daughter's mother got it last week, and luck of the draw, we were all. She was in Oregon, and she stayed in Oregon. You didn't have to lock her in a basement watching Scorsese movies on an iPad, which is what my son did. Nope. She was in uh, a hotel, and I said, "Just stay in the hotel and charge it to your <laughs> to your work because they gave you COVID in the first place." And so, yeah, my daughter and I had a couple of weeks just. Just bouncing around, going to, you know, I took her to every uh, model train and World War II museum in the region. Way to look on the sunny side of COVID. <laughs> but we didn't get, I didn't get it, <clears throat> but I'm going, I'm flying to Pennsylvania next week and. That's where you're going to get it. I'm going to get it there. I can't believe I brought COVID to Utah. Like I'm going to go, yeah. I'm going to go to the Red State where everybody's, um, you know, licking each other in the mall. <laughs> and instead of getting COVID there, I bring, bring it, it in the. In the persona of my teen. Yeah, I'm going to, to South Central Pennsylvania <laughs> where... Do the Amish they, have COVID? They never wore a mask once, and I'm going to be the one that's like the vector. You can't wear masks, English. <laughs> they have elastic on the ears. <laughs> I've never actually heard an Amish person talk. No, it's right there in the Bible. Can't put elastic on the ears. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, no elastic on any orifice. Is what um, uh, it's a it's a, it's a mistranslation said? because it went through Pennsylvania German. <laughs> but you wrote me yesterday. You texted me and said, "I just oh, I was going to say I don't want the brain fog. That's the main th- reason I don't oh want." Can you imagine doing this show with more brain fog yeah, than we already it have? Would sound, first of all, this show would sound exactly the same. <laughs> but Jeopardy would be a train wreck. <laughs> yeah, I texted you to say, "Hey, I just realized I've been in on I've been in the San Juans all day, and then." My wife got me Bell and Sebastian tickets for my birthday. Aww. I don't know when I'm gonna. Um, you guys are the love story for the ages. We really are. Yeah. I, in a way, she's Bell and I'm Sebastian. I know you're so cute. I, I, and I'm the, the boy Sebastian. <laughs> the fact that you both wear rabbit ears whenever we come over for <laughs> for dinner. We're so you know cute. we are kind of having a fight, but it's over which matching Winnie the Pooh tattoo we're gonna get. Yeah. Like, do you want Tigger oh. or do you want Eeyore? No, no, no. You want you want Pooh flying a kite. But the kite has a yin-yang symbol on it. Oh, the Tao of Pooh. Yeah. I don't know. How, how twee is Asian mysticism? We should, we should rank everything in terms of tweeness on how a scale of is. 1 to 10. I, mm, I have tweeness envy. Asian mysticism as translated through like through, West Coast uh, like pseudo-Buddhism? Yeah. Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance? Yeah. But motorcycles aren't twee. No, Zen and the Art of Fixed Motorcycle ma- Maintenance isn't twee, but carrying that book under your arm in high school is twee. We need to decide how twee everything is. Because uh, I said, I don't know when I'm going to actually prep Omnibus because I'm at a Bell and Sebastian show. And that's when I realized... And I rolled my eyes so hard. Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> it sounded like a bowling rink. 
You're keeping it so 2003. And then you said, say hi to Christopher Frizzell. So you know who your Bell and Sebastian friends are. Oh, I could have named 40 people at that show. And I'm sorry that I wasn't, uh, I, sorry, I could not travel both, but be one traveler long I stood. Traveler. So, you're, so you were not deprecating the scene. You, how, no. can, how can an early 2000s <clears throat> indie pop veteran like yourself have a bad word to say about Bell and Sebastian? I, I do not. Um, Bell and Sebastian were key players in the music scene that I, that I ultimately inhabited. So I was, because you came through a weird way. You came through your Ron Swanson, Alaska cabin way, but then you saw these sweet Scottish lads holding balloons and you were like, that's, that's, that's how I become a rock star, I guess. And you left your power tools and you walked through the tundra until you got to Olympia, Washington. Well, you know, my, my journey to being a rock musician uh, took me over hill and dale. Uh, you know, a, a, a B1 Ken, traveler, I, long I stood uh, and looked down one as far as I could, Ken. Ken, did I ever tell you about the time I walked across indie rock? <laughs> but, you know, I, I was only, I rather, I am only a year younger than Kurt Cobain. And, uh, and aging much better. Thank you. And, and I'm the same age as uh, the guys in Radiohead, except for the young one. And so I would have, should have, if I'd done the normal rock thing of being in a band when I was 22, I should have. Yeah, if you could have just done the normal rock thing of being in the biggest band in the world. Yeah, exactly. Think, or one of the two or three biggest bands. Think how many cars I would have, Ken. But you know, normally what you do as a, as a rock person is you are really into rock in your teens. You start a band with your friends. I'm just paraphrasing from every, every issue of Cream Magazine. And then, you know, you play a bunch of shows when you're 20 and 21, you get signed and then... You're sleeping on somebody's couch. Ah, and you're playing and your first record is either the one or it's your second record's the one or whatever. But usually by the time you're 26, it's established, did you make it or not? And most musicians, by the time they're 26, if they haven't, if they haven't had any traction, they start to wrap it up you but, know but you're like the you're like the 26 year old guy playing quarterback for byu but you're an older cagier version of them you can run circles around these kids well the problem was i didn't get sober until i was 26 and before i got sober i couldn't keep two quarters in my pocket you know i didn't have a Much guitar less keep a guitar tuned couldn't i didn't have a place to i didn't have a place to live so there was no way to be in a band because i wasn't one of those junkies that had like supportive friends <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you're really blaming your friends for not for not making you tom york <laughs> so i didn't start i didn't really start playing music until i was 26 27 and by that time the wave to catch was well, so grunge sweet, was sweet, dainty, Glaswegian grunge. Not yet. Grunge was over, but there was not. It wasn't quite clear what was next. And for for that period in the late nineties, it was like, is it math rock? Is it post math? Is it post pre math? Is you're, it, you're a smart guy. You can probably keep seven four in your head. You, yeah. could, you could have oh, been a math sure. rock god for sure. There's lots of there's lots of alternative time signatures in the long winters. But you know, it was like, is it hardcore? Is it post hardcore? Is every band going to sound like botch? Like, who knows? And it was, it was only, um, and then indie started to, and indie, what did indie mean? It, yeah. it was like, does it sound like pavement? Is pavement twee? It, indie is, yeah, indie comes from a release strategy. It's not a genre. Yeah. It's a label. But it was, but for a long time in the middle there, it was like, oh, we're, 
the next movement of music is to be really difficult to listen to. And it was only when Twee started to fill in all the cracks. What if music was pretty and it was about my high school girlfriend? So my bands in the 90s, late 90s, were loud. We had big amplifiers. We played shows with other bands that had big amplifiers. It was, we were using the amps that Aerosmith used because that was all Probably. anybody had ever thought of. The same ones you bought the them very off ones. eBay. They, they still had scarfs on them. <laughs> they all have Aerosmith stenciled <laughs> on the back. They were cheap at the time. Um, and when that first generation of bands, and they were all a lot younger than me, um, I remember the first time I played with a band, uh, they opened for us, and we had our amps, you know, big wall of amps. It was so loud, too loud to even be in the room. And all bands were like this. All distortion shoegazy loud and this band came in and put their amps down in front of our amps and they were basically uh toys their they, amp was a toys R Us ukulele they were just toys and they put and they had and the ship prices that whole vibe of like that they My carried marshall stack <laughs> they carried their stuff in like a little makeup case from the 60s and then they put their little toy amp on top and we were like what is this and uh it turned out they were great the band was great and so it was... It turned out doll furniture was the future. It began a, a long and, I have to say, painful readjustment. Decline into sensitivity. But really, you were probably at an age where that, uh, that's what you want, because you were older than the rest of the bands that had to adjust. You were, you were poised. You were poised to start wearing sweaters on stage. Every one of the people that I came up with in the music scene had quit music at the, right around the age of 30. It's kind of a... It's, a, it's understood, at least it was... You're 30, dude. Quit. Go, go, go to work for your dad's company. Yeah, go get a job. <laughs> and I was 30, 31, and didn't quit. And all of a sudden, I had to, I had to wheel my giant amp down to the guitar store. You had to sell it back to Aerosmith. And trade it in on a little, on a little thing the size of a boombox and like relearn. I had to relearn everything. It seems like a story about actually you jettisoning the toxic masculinity of the big phallic amp and uh, embracing a, a softer, gentler you. Well, yeah, except the band that I was in with the big amps, the lead guitar player was a woman who was like the the loudest one in the band. <laughs> and I jettisoned all the toxic masculinity and then my next band was just all dudes. Have you seen Bell and Sebastian? Yes. Lately? No. I saw them... What handful era? of times in the 2000s. The peak of their powers. Yeah, we, we played on a bill together in Spain. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was a member of that music scene. So, yeah, I saw them every chance I could. It's funny to see them now because they are the most guaranteed crowd-pleasy show of that generation. Stuart Murdoch, the frontman, wants kind of a, wants a, sh a, a shy wee lad grappling with chronic fatigue syndrome is now basically a lounge singer. Uh -huh. He uh, he engages in he spars with his bandmates in witty repartee in a in a delightful brogue. And he, yeah, the accent carries it. Obviously, <laughs> we we can't we can't emphasize enough in this twee in this twee uh, entry how important the accents are. Is he wearing an Arab strap? <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, it, oh, you you couldn't see it. Well, he didn't show it off, but but almost certainly, right? Isn't that what isn't that what keeps you whimsical at his age? Ah, well, that's a big question, right? What what does keep you whimsical past 
if not drugs or Jesus, like where does whimsy come from maybe in middle age? Maybe it's from grappling with chronic fatigue syndrome. And now he's just grateful for every moment he can, he can, uh, you know, take requests from an adoring audience and he, he dances and hops and prances. The funny thing about Bell and Sebastian is if, you know, in their early days, those early EPs, I think their contract with Jeepster specified that they would never give an interview. They would never do a photo shoot. They would never promote their music in any way. That was the style of the time. So they're, they're, those early EPs are very mysterious. And if you got one, you were like, who, you know, the, the, who are these clip art people on the cover? They kind of had the, the, the Smiths thing of having just mysterious black and white photos. And you'd, you'd pour through the weird little essays and the liner notes and the lyrics. Is this really about him and, and Isabel? Are, they, are these real people? Is there a Bell? Is there a Sebastian? And now... Now they're a lounge act that yeah. that uh, charters Mediterranean cruises. What what was you know what was interesting at the time was <clears throat> like the when Bronsky beat came out in the in the mid eighties, uh, singing in a very falsetto voice. It was kind of the first. I would I would th- I think of Bronsky beat as the first truly kind of twee. English pop band. They they foreshadowed a lot of twee sounds. Yes, you are getting the era right. But I, I think of this as a as a Bell and Sebastian late nineties thing, and it's not. I I missed the first ten years and had to go back. But Bronsky beat what what set them apart. But aside from their incredibly uh, like affecting and revolutionary sound when they first arrived, I mean, it was it was it was like getting hit with a a wallop the first time you heard them because it was so it's this strange falsetto, but it's like so passionate. And a lot of that passion was that they were singing, uh, openly about gay rights and the experiences of, of gay men, uh, at a time when that was not yet a thing you, that was not that they were kind of in a way, like the first, they walked so Pet Shop Boys could run. Yeah, and I mean, and Pet Shop Boys even masked their and George Michael. I mean, George Michael didn't come out until deep in his career, but they were like overtly, openly out, and and so the sound and the politics were really, you know, they it was they worked together, right? Like this music sounds incredibly fay, and it's also very political, and. That and it reinforced the idea that if you were a, if you were a male vocalist and you sang like this, that it had that it was a political act. Um, but so Bell and Sebastian uh, were Bell's, ambiguous, but you know they're resolutely straight. That's what I was going to say. Extremely sensitive, but like the tw- nothing about the twee movement as it's come down to us in the early twenty first century is queer at all no it is sensitive boys but with their with their skinny white girlfriends talking about mooning about their walking home hand in hand from the library but what felt political about it was that we were coming out of i mean you know grunge was was very progressive politically yeah but sonically it was just dude bros. Well, that's the thing about the emergence of Twee in Britain in the eighties is it's it's coming. It's a post punk movement, so it's you know it's right. you know in the same way that these Bell and Sebastian bands are reacting to to very yelly masculine grunge. These are bands who uh, who have seen the punk movement take the world by storm, 
but it's aggressive and it's it's got the very masculine posturing of cool you know it's not that different than than kind of 50s greasers you know like in in the way that like to be cool is to have a pose and that pose is unemotional um i mean you're yelling about you know you're mad at margaret thatcher or whoever you have something to yell at but it's it's a it is a pose you know you you care about the issues but but your manner is very much calculated to have a, a bravado and a swagger. And Twee, I think, could not be more of the opposite of that. They took, you know, these are bands that took that DEY impulse, like, what if we started playing music uh-huh. that was very simple? But these were the kids that had no time for the, that, you know, rejected the callousness of that kind of cool and were like, well, we could make a little stage in your mom's basement. And what if we cut? little stars out of construction paper and we'll, you know, we'll just wear the stripy shirts that, you know, it's often described as an adult version of the first day of kindergarten outfit. Um, <laughs> Cause these were not the cool kids. These were the geeks and the virgins and they still wanted to, to put on a show. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, the new romantic movement, which reacted to punk in, in that way, and went very glam, very, you know, it was coming yeah. from glam, yes. right? An extension of it. And and in the early 80s, it registered as very, very gay because of the makeup and the hair and the costumes. But it was... And, and it was hugely transforming for a generation of gay kids to be like, look, they're wearing makeup. But most of those people were, were straight. extremely straight, yeah. right? I mean, even Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran is like, just couldn't be straighter. But we had to lie about it to seem more interesting. But then, you know, it 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 introduced Kaja Goo Goo. It introduced um oh, what was the band with or the it was the first the first band that wore sweaters. What the hell were they called? Uh I can't I can't put my head my my uh you know, it's I probably have COVID, that's why I have this brain fog. It's brain fog. Brain fog made you forget every band but Kaja Goo Goo. But uh, but uh they were they were extremely clean cut. Please write in and tell me who I'm thinking of. They wore sweaters. They played their guitars very high up. It was a whole look. It wasn't modern English. It was anyway. Uh, yeah, there was there there. I mean, you think about Boy George, right? Like that's all. Very, that's one reaction to punk. That's very glam reaction to punk, and there is politics in it, but it's not this like we're too we're too sensitive to live in the world vibe that comes with Twee. Boy George was, boy George was like right, right in your face. Yeah. These were quiet kids coming home from the library. Uh, and their musical antecedents were, you know, couldn't be more different than sex pistols. It was bubblegum pop, sixties girl groups, all these, you know, jangly birds guitar. It was this kind of stuff. And so all over Britain, there are little pockets of, Kids in, in middle-class homes who are uh, kind of playing uh, with the punk with the, the punk DIY thing, doing it themselves, so they don't have the musical virtuosity or the training. The singer will have kind of a, a, a wispy, dreamy voice, you know, because of authenticity, and, you know, you, you're not going to belt it out. Like, you know, you couldn't be more different than a Roger Daltrey or a Kanye kind of star yeah but it's not just to convey that kind of sincerity it's also because they didn't have trained voices and they were teaching themselves how to play guitar and it kind of went with the the 80s slacker aesthetic you know 
So here's some easy, lazy melodies. This was the first thing we thought of that we could play the chords of. John Peel called it shambling. That was kind of the British equivalent of, of what would become slacker pavement aesthetic, you know, bands that were just kind of doing the, doing the least effort uh, to dress, to play, to songwrite. And there, this, this was true all the way through the, the 2000s, the 2020s, the, the, the political idea that not being trained or ready, which was a very punk idea. I don't want you to get started on your punk stuff. No, no, no. Don't get me started on the punk stuff. But, but that, 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 that notion that being amateur was preferable what is such a powerful idea in the arts you know it's not it gets you over that hump of how do i get from here to there it's not like a powerful it, idea in like medicine <laughs> or science or maybe like today increasingly today soldiering but in terms of like making art it's um yeah it's just it's so captivating the the idea the notion and i don't think you know i don't think in in the 50s if you went into a jazz context and said to a bunch of musicians like no i don't really know anything about music i can't really read music or anything i just kind of play what i feel they would they would not be into this vibe um but somehow somewhere along the line i think post 70s it, it it's become kind of a dominant theme in the arts or at least a, or yeah. at least a, a like a constant theme and i think it's because that's what a you know when young people read let's take literature you read like a salinger or a vonnegut or somebody that just seems like they've invented a voice that's just theirs and they're just talking to you in it and they're just putting it over through their honesty and and individuality you think wait i i could do how do i do this you know well i just do the same thing i just i just say what comes to mind and i sound like me and i i sing about the girl who moved and made me sad yeah um and so you know, I think the first bands I heard like this were, I mean, they often were, uh, had prominent women in the band. You mentioned, uh, that change, uh, bands like the field mice, which were, you know, kind of wispy, sad little songs could not be quieter or Tallulah Gosh, the forerunner band of Amelia Fletcher's heavenly, which was, you know, that was more of a kind of a sugary, fun, poppy kind of thing. But that's the thing, the fun like the intersection of fun and sad mm. is a big part of that's the, that's the corner where Twee lives right on the corner of fun and sad. <laughs> they used to live there, but then they moved away and oh, now, and now we're sad. But we still dance on the, on the fairy ring. These songs often, uh, were fascinated with nostalgia and childhood and they're by young people, but they're by young people remembering that first love, that first kiss. Um, playing soccer, you know, with your mates, uh, walking home from whatever, sitting on the bus by somebody and thinking they're cute. Soccer is so exhausting, though. <laughs> they, they, they probably weren't playing that hard. <laughs> but, you know, just that the whole suspicion of adulthood and the escape back into childhood tropes. And with it, a focus on, on the things that matter to children or that, we, that our culture has told us matter to children. Some essential goodness and, and gentleness there's a sweetness and a purity there that allows you to just, and if you haven't been good at being the cool kid, well, Hey, you know, when I was happy and untroubled by this stuff and I'm, I'm sympathetic to this, I remember 
you know, not you know, very much being a Gen X kid who didn't feel like he could just go home and, um, you know, draw maps of fantasy kingdoms or whatever I really brought me pure happiness as a child. Um, but that just wasn't going to do anymore. Because you had to work in the coal mines. You had to start breaking rock. <laughs> no, I just had to like know more about like the NBA and whatever my friends were interested in. Now, what is that in the, in the culture? Cause we're living in the world of it now where the child and childhood and innocence are things that I think almost at any time in human history, going back 400,000 years until yes. very recently, childhood was a thing to grow out of and leave behind. And there was no, there was very little, even among the romantics, even among the people that were the most, um, like, uh, in their, in their lace handkerchiefs, uh, there was no lionizing of yeah, child. Goethe and Byron aren't saying it would take, it would take a, an eccentric, it would take a mystic like William Blake to actually think there was something virtuous about childhood. And that's why that work is held up so well, but it was, it was just the occasional, the occasional oddball. Yeah. Otherwise Who, Everything was everything was directed at leaving childhood behind, and it wasn't understood that childhood. I mean, not that there wasn't culturally anything special about it, which was also true. Get that kid to the coal mine, but it was very much like um, there was no understanding that children thought and worked differently. People somehow didn't remember. Children were thought of as miniature adults, and the quicker they could learn table manners and a good work ethic, the better. Yeah, I think uh, it would have been described not that they think differently, but that they think poorly or exactly. completely, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, oh, whereas, that is how a child thinks. Whereas today we think of the sense of wonder and awe, yeah. and how do I reconnect with that? No yeah. no even recognition, much less valorization of that. And I guess a lot of that started to happen in the literature around um, Winnie the Pooh and... Bingo. Let's talk about Winnie the Pooh. Oh, right. I was reading, I was looking back at a cultural study of the Twee movement by... Uh, an author whose name I can't remember. Mark Spitz, journalist Mark Spitz, talking not, not the Olympic swimmer. Yes, it was actually the Olympic swimmer. Uh-huh. He writes also a tweet. He dollar. writes with those nine medals around his neck, and it makes a <laughs> clanking noise as he leans over the the keyboard, uh-huh. and it gets in his when he does interviews. It gets in the the mic. So often he can't hear uh, his subject speak. Tinkle tinkle. Uh, in this book, he traces the Twee movement back to certainly childhood signifiers, but I think because he's American, he thinks. To understand Zoe Deschanel playing the ukulele, you got to understand. And for him, it's like... You cannot understand it. You just have to, <laughs> you just have to roll just with go it. with it. <laughs> Why is she wearing a dollar store tiara, John? Don't ask, Why? Don't ask. Don't ask. Uh, to she him, got it from Courtney Love. To him, it's like, okay, you got to understand Judy Bloom. You got to understand Walt Disney and Dr. Seuss. And I think this is an oddly American take on Twee. Like, I think to understand Twee, you have to understand both Britishness and the, the outsider's uh, fetishization of Britishness. Yeah, for sure. And that's 100% Winnie the Pooh. The, these books sold, these were uh, books that kind of romanticized not just the Edwardian nursery and childhood uh, and childhood dreaminess, making up little little poems and hums. You know, childhood is not just all having adventures and, and shooting slingshots at your mates. It's also just lying under a tree and looking at a cloud and making up a song to the cloud. Yeah. Having a mild speech impediment and, <laughs> and wanting to play with your little stuffed kangaroo. That's just an upper-class British accent. They don't all have speech impediments. <laughs> Some of those Woodhouse characters are trying to talk like that. 
and yeah, and the and the countryside, the beautiful British forest. You know, you know, being with your girlfriend at the Grand Canyon is not twee, but being in a birch forest with a carpet of bluebells underfoot—that's yeah. twee. The whole the whole feeling that like the 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 woods behind your house was infinitely large. Yes, and uh, as you get older and you realize, you go back home and you're like, everything's so small. But that feeling. And Christopher Robin is walking through those woods with a teddy bear. And Stuart Murdoch is walking through those woods with a with a girl in a librarian skirt. But it's kind of the same woods, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, And the thing about those Winnie the Pooh books is they sold just bajillions of copies, mostly to adults. You know, like I think I think adults were like, oh, my my kid will love this because it's a view of childhood. It was the first time somebody had said kids make up little words and songs. And it's not kind of the the sneering, or not sneering, but um, the harder-edged Lewis Carroll kind of nonsense. Yeah, right. Alice in Wonderland has elements of it, but Alice in Wonderland is scary. It's whimsical, but it's also scary. Yeah, it's dealing more with a lot of childhood. And then adult concerns of logic and riddles and wordplay that we've discussed that really um, appeal to only a small, odd number of kids. Yeah. And that's that's kind of an adult's idea of of what kids will think is fun. Yeah, it's uh, it feels like someone... Uh, ate some tainted grain. <laughs> where where there's, there's nothing psychedelic about poo. It's just soft. It's just friends exceeding, singing exceedingly gentle songs of nonsense syllables. Eeyore is so sad, but we still love him. He's kind of annoying, but Dorothy, we love him. Dorothy Parker reviewed, famously reviewed House at Pooh Corner for, um, where was she reviewing for? The New Yorker or The Atlantic? Beautiful. She did a series of, you know, she did a series of re- reviews, I think pseudonymously assigned to a, uh, somebody to call it constant reader and in the third person constant reader would tell you about the new uh, uh sinclair lewis or uh uh, uh a. A. Milne. uh in this no. case <laughs> sinclair lewis or i was gonna say somerset mom or yeah, somebody evelyn wah but in this case she reviewed winnie the pooh and after qu- well, the times used to be better <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> dorothy but- parker reviews <laughs> winnie the pooh <laughs> <laughs> Under the name Constance Reader for the New Yorker. After after you know after quoting Pooh and Piglet's tiddly pom hum at length. And nobody knows tiddly pom. Oh, you know how the cold my toes. You know the lyrics. And and you've made up a how tune? cold my toes. Tiddly pom are growing. Tiddly pom. No. Did Loggins and Messina cover this? How do you know this? <laughs> no, Piglet. You don't say tiddly pom at the end. Only in between. How do I know? Because I played Christopher Robin at the Shoreline Community College production of House at Pooh Corner in 1978. <laughs> oh, no, not okay. a year ago. And I was the and the rest of them were all community college students. How short were your shorts? They were pretty short. Could we see your Arab strap? <laughs> no. I have pictures of it somewhere, but yeah, they cast a real child as Christopher Robin. And adults as all the animals? And all the animals were were college students. And you were the lone child. I was the lone tossed child. into the world of community theater. This explains a lot about you. And it was a musical we all I sang all the Christopher Robin parts. The first day of practice, I showed up and did my lines in uh, rehearsals. I mean, did my lines in an English accent. And at the end, the director was like, let's kill the accent. I think you might have told me that before. (laughs) Anyway. Christopher Robin. So uh, Dorothy Parker famously finished the review. At at that point, constant weeder flowed up. (laughs) And that kind of a that kind of a baby talk thing, uh, you know, replacing the K's with the T's and leaving off letters and replacing the R's with W is really what gives us the word twee. 
Uh, oh. Its first printed appearance was in 1905 in a punch serial called At a Moment's Notice, kind of a, a satirical look at the, at the bright young things of the day with the smart set in London, maybe in their, in their motor cars. Uh, eh, 1905 might be too up, early. Up, 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 exactly. Um, the, the author is just the initialed M.A. I don't even know who it is, but she's quoting her cousin Phyllis, who's always inventing slang. She sees a, an organ grinder's monkey and says, isn't he D.V., which is a word she's invented for divine. Oh, he's just too trotty for words. Look how ducky his little ears are. And at the end, she says, somebody objects to, to this characterization of the monkey. And she says, well, I call him perfectly twee. And Meaning? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's assumed to be, and I believe this to be true, given the constant weed or float up, it's a, a baby talk corruption of sweet. Oh, he's twee. He twee, he twee, twee the same way that Tweety Pie, little yeah. Tweety Pie, is a is a pun on Sweetie Pie, and that's how the the, the Frizz Freeling Looney Tunes bird gets its name. Um, I don't know if the word appears again until 1917. Uh, a British uh, comic author named M.T. can't read my own writing. Something like Hasseline, who is also a vicar, because of course he is. Of course, Vicar Hasseline writes a series of. of uh, Again, satirical, mildly comic novels, as as everyone was doing in Britain back then. And he has a, a Navy paymaster called Tootalum Dibs, because you could be in the Navy and be nicknamed Tootalums. Yeah, absolutely. Back then. Tootalums Dibs is a, because he's a paymaster, he doesn't really understand much of what happens on a naval ship. But he's showing around uh, a group of you know, a group of young Girl Scouts that I think he's got a, right. his eyes on. This all checks out. And Tootalum uh Pigs is showing Girl Scouts around a Navy ship. Tootalum Pigs shows one of the kids. Uh, uh, shows one of the young the young girls, the doughy eyed, doughy eyed, doughy eyed, rosy cheeked young girls. Uh, doughy eye is a different yes. condition. Yeah. I don't know if you can have a doughy eye. <laughs> I have many doughy parts, but uh, uh, she sees some kind of weapon and says, "Oh, but it's so small." And he says, "Well, that must be a practice weapon." He's just making things up. He yeah, doesn't know. Right. And she's like, "Well, I think it's too twee for words." So it appears to be have kind of become a um, a British youth slang for sweet among a certain kind of um, lollipop s- clutching girl. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Dora from Charles Dickens. But this just becomes this is like an occasional citation of a you know basically a speech impediment more than a slang term until 1967. Oh wow! Okay, there's a big jump here. We're now in swinging Carnaby Street, Ooh. London. Can you imagine it? Lynn Redgrave is go-go starring boots. in a movie I don't remember. I'm sure she's wearing go-go boots called Smashing Time um, about the the scene in Chelsea or wherever. And uh, unfortunately, this movie, which is half in swinging London slang, is written by a George Melly. A, um, he's 75 years old. He is in, he is in his 40s. <laughs> and he has no idea what the young people are saying in London. So if you watch the movie, it's got all these teens saying things like, he's having the spadiest freak out of all time. Yeah, which totally spady. I'm sure is made up and possibly a racial slur. I don't even know. It's kind of like, but, but you know, there's, uh, Stephen Sondheim has said that when he was writing West Side Story, he did not know what young people were saying. And he, and he knew if he got it right, it would just be dated six months later. So he kind of invented what sounded like youth slang. And then know. created youth slang. And that's why the Jets and the Sharks are saying things like, you know, you know. You're, you're uh, the one that knows the, the, the script of West Side Story. So, suddenly I don't have an example. <laughs> but anyway, all the things that, they, that the young kids say there are just, you know, a middle-aged gay man's idea of what sounds like youth slang, but will fool a Broadway audience and won't date in a year. 
And when the movie is released in America, the studio, to, to instruct American audiences to what they're hearing, releases a, a, a glossary oh, good. of London slang. Kind of like the, the glossary that came with the movie Dune. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you need to, you need to study up. Uh, in this case, it's more like the, the grunge lexicon. Oh, sure. Swinging be- on the flippity flop. Because it's largely made up. It's this made up guy. It's this 40-something guy's idea of, of swinging... Austin Powers slang. And in that list, he tells American journalists and, and writers and, and readers that twee is a Brit is London slang for camp. You know, it's Oh, so so it's not so he would have probably heard twee in his time in his day. It's going back fifty years. Yeah. And he's kind of got it right. It, yeah. it, you know, by the time you put the baby talk on it, it conveys a certain kind of you know, it's it means sweet. It conveys a certain kind of childlike gentleness, but it's been filtered through you know, baby talk. So possibly a sneering outsider's view of it, which gets to our modern definition of twee, which again is all about gentle childhood and feelings and sensitivity. But there's a, when it's used, it's often used in an arch way, like to comment on those things. You know, uh, it was music critics that first started using twee in the 90s, especially CMJ um, started using twee to refer to this, this, sensitive 80s post-punk music from Sarah Records and, and you know, all their little seven inches. Uh, and and the scene that had formed out of that, what happened was NME occasionally did a, did a mixtape, yeah. you know, and it would just be like, here's some holiday music, here's some uh, soul, you know, here's some, right. here's some 1960s R&B. Uh, in this case, they put out a mixtape, a cassette, uh, C86, which was all these little local basement bands playing xylophones playing ukuleles and xylophones and suddenly this uh disparate group of do-it-yourself post-punkers became a scene and found each other and started to what get attention this? on labels i think c86 came out in it might be 86, 86 that might be why it's so named it might have been an annual nme thing and so when music critics started saying twee they were uh, it was a bit of a pejorative it was like, oh, look at this dainty little music now. Isn't it just too precious for words? It remained a pejorative right alongside it being a... It kind of is both today. Yeah. This is one of the great enigmas of Twee, is that it both refers to this kind of earnest, sincere art, but it also refers to extremely mannered retro artists like Wes Anderson. You yeah. know, like, I think he's described as Twee very often, and... It's a compliment. It's an insult. It's just a straight descriptor. It, it's all those things simultaneously. And that's that's not unusual for a genre to be defined after the fact by a critical voice instead of the actual, in this case, the actual, you know, women pressing the seven inches. Although it uh, became a methodology. Twee became a, a uh, th- there was a science to it. Right, there were well, what, yeah. Once there's a scene and you see these bands getting signed, okay, well, maybe I should wear ruffles and maybe maybe I should get a dime store tiara. And, yeah, maybe you should play the ukulele and, or the banjo instead of the guitar. And now we're Mumford and Sons, right? Uh, Although it, they are not twee. I mean, there's something tw- so twee metastasizes is what happens here. I mean, we're only up to the mid '80s and it's about to hit America um, through no less than Calvin Johnson. Uh, <sighs> Without or without Olympia Washington and, <laughs> and K Records, this I just mi- got a cold chill. This might all just have, have died in Oxford and Manchester basements. You invoked Calvin Johnson, and now 
Uh, the the room grows dark. Is the vibe gone now? <laughs> okay, go ahead. What's, what, what's your what's your experience with, oh, no, no, with no, no, beat no. happening? No, and... let's not talk about my experience. Let's just <laughs> let's just stay on target. Would there be litigation? Stay on target. If you were to tell some of your stories? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just you know we're we're now traipsing into. This is our scene. We're backing into our scene. This is here. Olympia, Washington. Yeah, and you know today K Records would be we think of them as the label that broke Modest Mouse or you know, put out back records and then all the, the riot girl stuff. Um, but in fact, beat happening was a reaction to punk, you know, Henry Rollins will snarl at you, but we're going to throw candy. Yeah. And they loved those, that British music. And so they brought it over here. They released uh, heavenly Amelia Fletcher's new band and, you know, Calvin Johnson duetted with her and they appeared on each other's records and they found other British bands like that to bring to the States. And then, Local, you know, now homegrown bands like that started popping up, just like when the British invasion hit. Um, and except, suddenly, except the, the local homegrown bands weren't weren't exactly the the Beach Boys, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, kind of like Kurt Cobain loved the Vaselines, yeah. you know, and and the the you know the harder edged music that had come out of that pop scene. Jesus, you know, you don't, you don't get Jesus and Mary Chain and the Vaselines, and maybe therefore you don't get grunge, weirdly, or at least, or at least the grandma sweater Kurt Cobain variant of it right um, without some of these British bands that he loved and it becomes a culture it's no longer just a rock critic thing to say twee starts to become an aesthetic and it, it brings together disparate strands you've got indie directors like Whit Stillman or Miranda July um, and then later Wes Anderson and then later Mumblecore who are kind of doing a, a simpler looking backwards kinds of things about goofy young people who don't mind if they don't look cool because um, these are uncool directors. Um, in literature, you've got Dave Eggers and all those McSweeney guys, the new sincerity, then Karen Russell, Jonathan Saffron for, you know, there's, there's, there's authors who, who get lumped in. Ira Glass invents this American life, which then begets all of podcasting, which is, and there's some, and there's something a little bit twee about. I just want to listen to my friends kind of have a, like what's more shambling in John Peel's word than a podcast conversation. Well, yeah, low I mean, low effort, but it's kind of fun, and you you feel like you get a good feeling from the the good vibe. And Ira's very just personally twee, like he embodies it. Okay, and then it becomes a fashion thing. He's wearing the horn rimmed glasses, and suddenly this kind of thing in the Obama era is everywhere, and it it just it just becomes what we now think of as hipster Portlandia culture, you know, without Twee, you don't get the mustaches and the farmer's markets and the, the crocheted owls on Etsy and everybody trying artisanal pickles or chocolates or marmalades. And, uh, it just became a whole culture. And then that sweetness and the, the kittens and all it did, it, it becomes Zoe Deschanel singing. What are you doing on new year to Jonathan Gordon Levitt on YouTube and getting a hundred million views because, She's got those big blank eyes and rosy cheeks and a Jerry, is it raining outside? <laughs> Go look out the window. <laughs> Bangs. What was what was interesting at the time was, you know, in the in the eighties there was still a lot of suspicion, I think, in mainstream culture about Japan. Japan was still the other throughout the eighties. It was weird. Like we didn't think Hello Kitty was cute. We were like, what is this? What is wrong with those? Like like Mickey Mouse is cute, but what the heck? Yeah, they're coming to steal our jobs and they're, you know. But then in the early 90s, the, uh, the like, floodgates opened for that 
kind of, it wasn't even like appropriative. We just, in the music scene, especially just were newly fascinated with the style and, you know, it might've been a generation that came up that now was exposed enough to Japanese cartoons and stuff that they, they wanted more. If that, if that's your baseline idea of cute and it's not whatever Walt Disney invented in 1938, then you're more open to it. But like the first time I saw Shonen Knife, I, I, it felt uh, very revolutionary, but also like, what am I watching here? Like, this is, this is loud. I remember thinking that it was kind of unwholesome. Like when I, when I saw early anime, I was like, oh, this is, yeah. this is not, no, it's dirty. This is not the kind of, and there, I, I wasn't watching a dirty anime. I was watching some normal space one and I was still like, no, this is not the vibe that I get from children's entertainment. But the, the, but the, but that was a big wave of like the accoutrement of child, like, you know, like there was all of a sudden a lot more baby talk and baby stuff and kittens and cutie cutes. Bell and Sebastian took their name from a children's anime. Uh-huh. A French children's book about a, a, a kind of a boy in the Alps with his big, with his big white dog. What's funny is that, that the riot girl thing really re appropriated the baby doll dress and the, you know, the like sexy baby kitten, thing. Kitten ears. Yeah. But, but, but done in a, in like an intentionally dirty ripped fishnet way. That's not twee. No, but it, but it allowed for, it allowed that baby was punk. And then you could, yeah, the, then the next iteration was to just wear the straight up clean baby <laughs> costume. It was yeah, no longer made punk, but it was somehow like it was in. If you were uncomfortable with that, if you actually wore something a little more prep, well then fine. You can just wear your wear your ballet flats and your and your cardigan on stage. And <sighs> and that's what everybody did for about suddenly this was the biggest youth scene since since punk and then hip hop. And this would have been right in your mid 20s, right? You were you were the target audience for Quiet as the new loud. I feel like uh, I feel like what it turned into the the whole Williamsburg mustache scene that predates me a little. I feel like this is an omnibus for the millennials. Finally, we're going to throw them a bone. Oh boy! And we're not going to tell them about the emergency broadcasting system and and uh, the electric company. <laughs> <laughs> and, inst- and instead, we get to uh, explain um, explain bangs and uh, and glasses and and Portlandia to them. But see, so to me, it feels a little, to me, it feels like I just missed it. Like if I, if I had been cooler, if I'd actually been, you know, listening to the, to the flexi disc in the middle of Q magazine every month in the early nineties, then maybe I would have caught some of this sooner. But the, but, but quiet as the new loud is a, is very much a 2000 yeah. to 2008 I was married. I was married in the year 2000. Is what you have to remember about my mid to late 20s. It's so funny. You were doing drugs. I was still (laughs) sleeping in a van that whole time. And you were already like, all right, kids, time to go to school. Luckily, I didn't have kids until mm, 2000. Well, 2002. Yeah, there's your quiet as the new loud. But yeah, boy, I'll say. But it introduced also all that Scandahoovian quiet vibe stuff right all the norwegian danish cigarettes kind of yeah thing? but 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 like I don't, the pop stuff that came out of i don't know the anti-abba of of scandinavia during that time was all about yeah it diverged you got clean, ace of base on one hand but then you got the exactly 
Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, I'm talking about Scandinavian musicians that were not burning down churches. Right. Uh, but yeah, there's a there's an awful lot of and Bjork can do both, which is amazing. There you go. There are an awful lot of cardigan sweaters coming out of there. And I don't know if the culture has settled on its judgment on Twee. I mean, was it on the one hand, it was all about you know gentleness and goodness and what if what if art was this? You know, Dave Egger is just you know telling you like you you don't have to be mean. What if we were all just kind and loved our little brother um like or or very quickly turn once it became a culture then it's then we're suspicious of it is, well, is, is this just saccharine how can you be wankery? suspicious of it it completely b- abolished meanness in our culture <laughs> i mean that's the thing it didn't work <laughs> we, we now know but i mean but those individual artists like may have been like i i you know i don't believe that you know, when i see these people live or i read one of their books or i see a miranda july movie i don't think Look at this sociopath who got away with it. I think, ooh, look at these nice young people who were able to do art about it. It's interesting because a, a lot of the a lot of those artists, Miranda July and Dave Eggers, like they were making. I mean, they're they are they are earnest and accomplished, very real creators, right? Mm-hmm. But there was like any scene. There's a hundred more. Well, and it and there becomes a formula. And there was a formula for grunge, and there was a formula for psychedelic rock, and there's a formula for funk, and there became a formula for twee that you could just plug in. And so there were a lot— And then it seems saccharine because it probably is. Well, and then what you get is fans that are responding to the formula of twee who have a—and you didn't see this, I don't think, the same—you saw—I saw it for sure in grunge. People that came to grunge after it was a formula— and they had a formulaic fan response. They knew what, it, what they were supposed to look like yeah. and how they were supposed to act and how they were supposed to feel. And being in the music scene and watching fans start to show up who had, who had gone and thrown away all their, their other, the old band stuff and had bought all the new band stuff. And they were like, is this Twee? Am I Twee? I am Twee. Like, this is Twee. And then the next kid would come in and they're like, that's not Twee. This is Twee. It was, it affected me because it was my scene at the time. And it wasn't my scene. I was 10 years older than everybody that was in it. But my band was not even twee, but definitely performing within that universe. It was sensitive. Yeah. And, you know, like. Not as sensitive as Colin Malloy, but it was sensitive. There's no sensitivity to Colin Malloy. No, it was, you know, like (laughs) we were playing with American Analog Set and. You know, it was, and Death Cab, and it was a time when you, you, um, well, it was the very beginning of a kind of trigger alert mentality of saying to your audience, like, you don't want anything unpleasant. Yeah, no, okay, everybody, you know, like the first time I saw Elliot Smith and the audience all sat down on the floor at the crocodile, and I was like, do you know how much barf there is on that floor? (laughs) Get up. I did kind of notice that Stuart Murdoch last night, he sounds like a children's television show host now. Something about the way he talks. Like he might as well be narrating Teletubbies. And and so I guess that, yeah, that was, to watch it all go down, you know, there was a lot of Generation X suspicion about Twee, even though most of the the purveyors of it were Generation X entertainers yeah. at first, right? But it... it it um Eggers in July and Calvin Johnson or Yeah. But it all it all uh it introduced 
well, I guess it, what am I trying to say? Musicians have always been sensitive, but it introduced a new sensitivity, like an, a, a more performative sensitivity and a, and, and a, and a, and a more, it, you've you always want your musicians to be vulnerable, but the vulnerability became, it, 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 it became fragile. Hmm. There was a, in order to pursue Twee to its logical extent, you have to... The end of Twee. You have to become f- fragile. And when you think about Morrissey, Morrissey is very sensitive, but you don't get the feeling he's fragile. <laughs> or, or, or healthy in any way. <laughs> or, or, or nice, even, you know? Yeah. But, like, think about what's the first musician... I mean, all the junky jazz guys that all, you know died or whatever there were um like nick drake is he the first twee indie artist i mean that's a great that's a great point you know uh like too sensitive to live you know spitz's book just tends to go back to um people like jonathan richmond you know emphasizing the outsider art part and not what i think of as the hallmark of twee which is Kind of the Nick Drake. I'm yeah. I, I'm 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 wispy. I'm British, and the world is too much with me. You know, like atmospheric pressure is going to just collapse my pale skin and and capillary lungs at some point. Because Jonathan Richmond does the whole like I'm a I'm just a child. You know, like, yeah. But he's also not fragile. No, that's exactly. It's, I think the fragi- let me suggest an ur source for Twee that I haven't heard before. Tell me if you think this is crazy. Paul McCartney. <gasps> Sometimes people point back to like, I don't think you get, people point back to, you know, the zombies playing harpsichords or the kinks and their village green preservation society. But it's Paul McCartney sitting on his grandmother's lap playing uh, vaudeville on a banjo. Paul, Paul came from, I was watching the Rick Rubin. Have you seen the, the Hulu series where Rick Rubin interviews him? He talks a lot about how he had a happy home where everybody sat and sang jolly songs around the piano. And he didn't realize, and that's how you get the, the Admiral Halsey voice, you know? Like all the, if you don't watch Get Back, you know all the Beatles love to do kooky voices for hours. And you, have to, and you have to fast forward. But think about the difference between John's kind of sneering, and now we'd like to do Ark the Angels come and Paul, who is very much like, Admiral Halsey, you're not going to help me. He notified me that we're going to have tea. Butter pie. Uh, that's why John hated Paul. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be hard to put up with, with that. Yes. But imagine, but imagine Paul in 19, those pictures of him in 1970 with Linda on the farm, and he's wearing some squ- uh, an old sweater kind of askew. Yeah, when they and, moved up north. Yeah, and he's singing. And he, you know, even when he's in the Beatles, he's the one putting children's lullabies, Edwardian, you know, Victorian lullabies in songs, and I mean, children's what, songs about submarines. But what John failed to appreciate was that from the listener's standpoint, we all read that as very sinister and weird, right? John knew that Paul was earnestly a goofball. And so when, yes. when, when Paul was like, I love it all, John was like, God, you suck. But, as but if, l- if you filter it through me, it seems like psychedelia that yeah. we're all wearing epaulets now. Exactly. As <laughs> listeners, I was like, that voice is the weirdest of all. Like Paul being like a giant puppet. And John could never understand that the, what they were making was bigger than his personal problem with Paul's grandmother. Paul, yeah, John had an unhappy childhood and, and Paul didn't understand until he met those guys that, but that's that the they classic, were coming from a different place. That's like, the old school dynamic. John was angry, but way more fragile. 
Yeah. Paul was Punk. sweet and and doofy, but like but, but totally healthy and self-actualized. Completely and, not fragile at all. You know, he meets, you know, Linda's got an adult kid and he's like, Great, fab, let's adopt her. You know, like I know. And then I can read Winnie the Pooh to her. You can walk right up to Paul, get right in his face and go like, You suck, Paul. And he'd be like, Whoa, fuck you, man. you know, like <laughs> You think he'll do the he'll do the Admiral Halsey voice? I'm sure he would. <laughs> Oh, peace and love. He's doing. He's singing songs about even in the Beatles. He's the one doing songs about raccoons and sheepdogs and you know children stuff. Childhood. I feel like the when he was happiest. I feel like Nick Drake is is maybe Nick Drake's good. Yeah, that's a good one of the first where. But he's not being a child, but he's very soft. And he's a Byronic young man, but he's not, he's not out making conquests. He's thinking about if, oh, I wish that I could. And I, I, I guess there was no time period in history where it was safe to be that vulnerable. Where you weren't as vulnerable as Twee is, yeah. where you wouldn't be putting yourself in harm's way by exposing that much but but then it becomes performative, and there are people that are fine. <laughs> and, well, and think about you know in every generation, but this one, think about the homophobia that would have accompanied be, right. being such a a sensitive man. Like I think in as recently as last year, I think Mindy thought Stuart Murdoch was gay, and I was like, no, the whole the whole thing of the band is him writing four albums worth of songs during a ill fated six month six week romance. It's so funny because I always thought they were Christian. <laughs> No, you're thinking of Sixpence None the Richer. I I love Sixpence None the that's Richer. The, that's the Christian oh, Bell of Sebastian. Oh, she was so pretty. We are kind of in a... Let, let me just uh, finish this by pointing out that we are possibly in a twee return. What? It never went away. How can we be returning? The vibe shift people are all telling us... I think twee kind of did go away once once it reached its apotheosis of of all the pastels and the Peter Pan collars and, and Zoe Deschanel on the ukulele. People realize this is not sustainable. Time has compressed, and I still think we're there, but you're right. I know. It's been a a full decade. (laughs) 12 years ago. It's a full decade. And now the people who who monitor such things, you know, like the the guy in A Hard Day's Night that is worried that George Harrison knows about the new trend uh, early. Yeah. um, All these people are saying, no, the pandemic has brought back twee um, in the form of, you know, retro childhood stuff, you know, vinyl coming back and people wanting vintage you know old video games and to play the video games of their childhood vinyl's back again how many times can (laughs) vinyl come back (laughs) but it's deeper than that it's also just this general and you know in tiktok personality if you tiktok is no longer um kind of cool mean girls like tiktok is now full of the biggest names on tiktok many of them are you know it'll just be a guy who dresses in vintage train conductor uniforms and waves at engineers you know um more mr rogers than um Oh, if I could think of something edgy that started with Mr. Here, I would say it. That would be perfect. More <laughs> Mr. Mr. Bungle. More Mr. Rogers than Mr. It's got to be something better than that. <laughs> um, and and then all the, you know, the wholesome mass culture stuff, Shit's Creek and Ted Lasso, where it's not wholesome, you know, people say, oh, this is the new wholesome art. And it's not wholesome in the sense of, you know, we would associate wholesome with... Um, what 1970s Disney movies. It's, it's not that, you know, Ted Lasso is, has more F words than a Tarantino movie. And it's full of women of a certain age talking in graphic detail about how their sexual conquests went. Um, but th- there's this overarching sweetness and unfailing optimism 
Yeah, the, it goes to great effort, and it appears less false because it's got all the 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 necessary trappings of modern culture. It's you know these are people who who swear and who uh, and who boink, but but still, you know they remember they're suspicious of the cynicism of adulthood. And it was it was funny. I remember what a second season of uh, Ted Lasso when they within the script it started introducing the fact that Ted was hiding a deep dark secret that he has trauma and that his his earnestness and optimism was a coping mechanism and i remember being disappointed that they that they did that you have to explain it the power of ted lasso there's just some guy who's like that and can change your life yeah and look at him look at the power he has in the world yeah. and when when it felt like they as writers needed to needed to be ironic or needed to find a way that ted was broken in order to contextualize this this sweet yeah. power it felt like a it felt like a failure but what if the virtue of it is is it shows that he chose it well but we can all but the the way the script seems to portray it is that it's a pathology it, it's a it's a it's a escape right yeah right it does yeah. not it feels like he's he's um he's hyper coping i mean that's an interesting thing about the return of twee and all this kind of wholesome media in the time of the pandemic i i was uh, somebody on jeopardy the other day composed a limerick about me and that was their contestant stories. They had written a limerick about me. Humble brag. And I was super... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Millions of people in America. When I America. was hosting Jeopardy the other day, <laughs> a fan composed a limerick. He was Go a contestant on. on the show. and but the people, Do you remember it? Pe- you no, remember I, I had forgotten that it had happened. Because, oh. you know, the show's air months earlier. And so many people are writing poetry about me, Jeff. Yeah, sure. This airs, and suddenly everyone is sending this to me, like with a still of me just being delighted that a, 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 a grown man has written a limerick about me. Or a woman? No, I can't remember who the contestant was. Well done. It doesn't even... Who, who you know even what? You knows? don't even see gender. It doesn't even matter to me, you know? And uh, it could have been non-binary. It doesn't matter. Not to me. Not to you. And uh, and people kept sending me this clip of my delighted face, and they're like, look how wholesome this is, you know? Oh. Somehow I had become part of Ted Lasso Media by virtue of being happy that a man had written a limerick about me. Um, I watched the last episode of 30 Rock uh, the other night. In now, I've watched Thirty Rock all the way through two times. You texted me; you were very sad that there were no more mountains. To and climb. I want to go back and just start again. I think for the rest of my life, I'm just going to always be somewhere in the middle of the six seasons of Thirty Rock. That's why people re-listen to podcasts. But in the final episode of Thirty Rock, you are name-checked because um, Tracy Jordan, in his, he's always getting Kenneth's name wrong. He always screws up Kenneth's name, and at one point he goes, "Listen to me, Ken Jennings," and I missed it. But I was watching TV with a friend, and she was like. He just called him Ken Jennings. I was like, no, <laughs> you're just here. You just hear Ken Jennings in the walls. But we went back and, and there it was. You're, you're, I mean, you're in the canon. Kenneth Parcells is kind of wholesome media, but then we also have, we find out that his innocence is also kind of a pathology. Does that bother you? No, his innocence is because he was born he's, in the 15th he's century. <laughs> yeah, he's centuries old. Here's what I think about, tic- about um, Twee coming back in the TikTok era is it's, it may be unwarranted optimism. Is it like, it's what you're saying. Is it just a, a, a unhealthy escape mechanism to, to fall back on wholesome feel-good media and rewatch The West Wing in, in 2022 because we know things are so bad? Think about how the previous kind of cool, the posturing 50s kind of cool, came out of a time when everything was good and everybody was making more money. You know, our parents were making 
more money than their parents had and the future for America looked bright and all these teens were like, whatever, I'm pissed off. And now it's the opposite. Things are bad and the teens are like, no way. Think what what would Ted Lasso say? He'd say believe. No, I I honestly I think the the can the and please if you're gonna if you're gonna write me about this, please write to Ken at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Care of thirty rock. Um but I feel like the 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 Twitter conviction that everything is as bad as it's ever been and that we are at the absolute, you know, the nadir of human history is in fact wrong. That's the problem. And that is the bad effect. That's the knock on effect of some earlier twee where, you know, where our sensitivities have created. And I mean, believe me, when you write Ken, your angry retort and list all the things that are wrong in the world, I know them all. Hey, John, what about climate change? <laughs> what about the wars in Latin America, Ken? I know, climate change, yes. But in fact, I think optimism is always the smart play. And I don't think it's a pose. Even, th- even in the Pascal's wager way, it's rational to be yeah. optimistic. If the world's going to end, it doesn't matter if you were optimistic uh, a couple of years earlier. And if you want to put real optimism under a cardigan sweater... Or you want to put real optimism to under... ukulele music? Yeah, or you want to just look at science. If you want to do a Neil deGrasse Tyson version of optimism, you can... You can, you can uh, Average GDP is up, hunger's down. <laughs> yeah, put your optimism in, in whatever color or sweater you want, but I think optimism is always the smart play. If you take all these people who think it's the worst time in world history, just you know, look at how many of them have smallpox. Zero. <laughs> Game, set, and match. And that concludes Twee! Entry 1352.1TH0207. Certificate number 16065 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era. We're doing kind of a pessimistic podcast, I just realized. We are? Well, yeah. Oh, right, because <laughs> we're, we're always like, nothing's going to survive. The world's, the civilization's doomed. But you know what? Every, it, you know, time is a flat circle. To everything, there is a purpose under heaven. We don't know when that's going to be. No. Put on your ballet flats and cut your bangs real weird. And the thing is, we're talking to, you know, sentient mats of, of, uh, of seaweed that probably are wearing their bangs weird and playing ukuleles. Do you, do you believe that twee exists in all cultures yeah. and times? Now that it has happened, you can never put twee back in the bottle, right? In the same way that you can never put punk back in the bottle, you can never put jazz back in the bottle. Twee is part of the... It's, it's out the, there. Part of the admixture of culture. Yeah. And there's always going to be someone there's that's even, like... It's like COVID. Oh, there's, no. there, there's reservoirs for it in deer and bats. It has tremendous power. And I think of it as part as part of the family of topping from the bottom, which is a huge part of Speaking modern culture. Really? Yeah, topping from the bottom, which is which is in, we, we had very different early twenties. What is? <laughs> tell me what topping from the bottom within S and M. You know, you've got your top and your bottom. I'm aware, but you can have bottoms that are really running the show. Oh, I see. And tops that are performing the the business of being the, you know, the okay. one in power. But in fact, it's the bottom that's, that's making all the choices. And what is the sociological, uh, simile here? Well, so, so we've introduced like extreme, like vulnerability into the culture, but there are a lot of people that weaponize it. Mm. 
and you can be, yes. you can use tremendous sensitivity and vulnerability and fragility as a way to be controlling, not just of your personal situation, but controlling of of organizations. I've noticed that social media is full of um, sweet, tender souls who just turn out to be manipulative psychopaths. Yeah, it's a, it's just another tool. It's a bummer because then you can't believe the guy that uh, the guy that's waving at the train engineers yeah what if he just wasn't what if he was just getting fewer clicks when he was actually cool this is the problem with all things that there's no you know as soon as you say well this person's actually using their using their vulnerability to to manipulate people there's you know you know what we need is a swab test for for tweet well our swab test for authenticity exactly that's what i'm saying it would be the same thing but that's what punk was trying to do all those years ken you can't Uh. can't swab test for authenticity because there's always somebody that's like, I was punk before you. In the unlikely event in the future that there's any way to tell whether people are honest or not. Maybe there's some, maybe they are. Maybe we species will eventually evolve a way where you like turn a different, you turn your jellyfish shell turns blue. If you are, um, if you have cut your hair ironically or have, um, like a literal litmus test or have said something sweet about your childhood that didn't actually happen. You just carry around a, carry around a little swab that turns orange and you're like okay it's like you hook somebody up to a polygraph and you're like tell me what how sad you were when your girlfriend moved to a different school and you just had to walk by her house every night i'm so sad boop oh no no i was i was so sad you haven't thought about her no i totally did you haven't thought about her in 20 years songs about her that even never happened (sighs) if you want uh to know how sociopathic Ken is. <laughs> what, can, what do you do? You can go on Twitter and uh, see right. him making jokes that are too soon at Ken Jennings. I made a joke about ET yesterday and I got told not to make jokes about, not to make jokes about, um, uh, suspension of disbelief in movies. Cause you're a big, now you're a big Scrooge and a Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you do that. Oh, because, because there's always somebody that's going to be like, well, well how come? We, yeah, here's a plot hole for you. Yeah, and, and the, I get it. At I get the it. end of this Star Wars, where's it. the, you couldn't even have a space station. But our culture is now so gentle, you can't even. Can't criticize you, E.T. You can't even point out that you really can't have ferns and redwoods at the top of a Southern California mountain. Which is my beef with E.T. Oh, well, I, I always assumed that. It, He's on a dry brown hillside overlooking the valley. Yeah. But he and his friends bike up to the top of the hill and suddenly there's ferns and redwoods. And also there's corn growing in their backyard. The the, the biomes of E.T. I think you could write a book on. <laughs> but wait a minute. I always assumed that it was part of that weird, that that they were in a, outside of San Bernardino. You know, if you're in San Bernardino, it's like a sun-baked wasteland. But then you go up to Lake Arrowhead and it's like a... It's like an elf kingdom. I'm starting to wonder, as I say this, I wonder if E.T. is supposed to be set in Northern California and they just shot it in Burbank. And so we all just assumed that view over the, uh, the view out over the trees is the valley. And it's really Uh, supposed to be Muir Woods looking down onto, onto uh, Modesto or something. Yeah, yeah, right. Or you could be in Grass Valley, California, except if you're just seven miles this way, you're, you got ferns up here in Donner Pass. And down down river, you're in Sacto, where it's 140 degrees. I don't think there's anywhere you can actually go from the those dry, golden California hillsides up to ferns and redwoods on a bike. Maybe not on a bike. Yeah, on a bike. but yeah. E.T.'s a botanist. If there it was a place like that, he would go there, and he'd be like, "Hey, why do they have redwoods and <laughs> and scrub oak and corn?" E.T.'s a botanist, all growing on this same block. 
<laughs> you didn't know that ET was a botanist? No, I could. You can. He's out there getting. Like he's gathering. That's sh- why they stuff. leave him behind because he's like. Meh. He's always making a geranium grow and wilt. He's really into that for some oh. reason. What a weirdo! Just leave the geranium alone, ET. Ouch! That's good. Thank you. Forty years old this summer, by the way. Ouch! Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail You can hang out with other futurelings. Please uh, CC. Or, I'm sorry, copy and paste the letter you write to Ken about how things have never been worse, and then post it on our fan group on Facebook, The Futurelings, and see how long the moderators leave it up. No, there are no <laughs> moderators anymore. It's free. It's a free zone. Sometimes I delete stuff if it's duplicate. If it's duplicate? If it duplicates if the letter duplicate? they sent you already. Or mean. No, but if, some, if two people post the same link, oh, hey, this is remind me of the show. Dear Ken, please tell John that things have never been worse. Signed... Your formerly biggest fan. I said Modesto, and I didn't really mean Modesto. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Something more Vacaville-ish. Or Santa Rosa, maybe? You're, you, you've got uh, pavement on the brain. <laughs> we all have pavement on the brain. <laughs> if you want to send us some stuff, uh, please do. Please send us your E.T. fan fic. Print it out. Remember, he's a botanist. <laughs> to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And finally... And most importantly, if you enjoy the show and uh, want to help us continue to make it, want to help. This is the punk DIY twee aesthetic. John and I making these little seven inch singles. This is it. And putting them in the ground. This is the indie rock. This is the, this is the, this American life of, of uh, Omnibus. Please support the show at patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Go to Patreon, join our community and reap a windfall of extra content and feeling of having done the right thing. It'll change your life. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our twee little civilization survived. Bling, 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 we hope and pray. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll put some ukulele music under this. I'm sure. Mark miles can hook us up. We hope and pray. Oh, we can't cause we're already doing the other sound bed. Can you do both? We hope and pray the catastrophe for me never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>